Thank you, Brother Nat, for those two scripture readings. They really do encapsulate quite well uh, the human quest for the good life and some, some response to that. It's one other announcement I needed to make. I promised I would make and completely forgot to get on my notes. Uh, Brother James Groff is away this week, uh, along with uh, Dewey and Stacy. They are at the uh, counseling training in Lafayette, Indiana, which starts tonight, and then plan to travel on to Ministers in Richmond for next weekend. And James just specifically asked that we request, we request prayer uh, for them as a family. James, as he's gone, Brenda and the children is there at home. Uh, gets to be a long week. And I think it's a, a longer time than they've been separated since they're married. And, you know, it's uh, a little odd how, maybe not odd if you understand the Christian worldview. Things tend to fly apart at home sometimes during these times. So well pumps go out and water heaters die and all kinds of odd things. So let's just remember them in prayer this week that the grace of God would would be very real and equip them for uh, this, this specific challenge. I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Micah, chapter 6, and I suppose we could also say, Micah, where's that? Uh, it's about seven books from the end of the Old Testament, a tiny little book of uh, prophecy, one of the minor prophets, and yet a very, very rich book. We've been spending a bit more time uh, looking at some of the, the pertinent issues that we as Christians face uh, in our age, in our culture, in the world in which we live. And I think we are all keenly aware that one of the things with which we are simply inundated in our day is media. And media has a huge impact in our world, in the way we think, in the things we want, in the things we desire. And it continues to just uh, hound us from all directions. Now, people take different approaches to this media-saturated culture in which we live. Uh, some people take, attempt to take, I would say, a complete abstinence view. We abstain from most forms of media. Others take, uh, We'll take all the media we can get and figure out some way to swim in the midst of it. And others take a slightly more discerning uh, cut and paste approach to the, the barrage of information that we're faced with. But you can get rid of almost all modern technology and commit yourself to walking, get rid of the car, and you encounter media. There are signs everywhere you drive, there are billboards, there's information just flying all over the place. And so we can't completely escape it. So introduce the subject of media to say, when we get to the end of the sermon, I'm going to make some applications of what we're talking about specifically to media. The potential of application from this passage uh, is vast, but I want to just bring these specific principles to bear on the issues of media. I'm also suggesting here in the open that one of the things that's common to all humanity, and I think we all here uh, could identify with this, that we, are, we really are in quest of a good life. 
None of us want to have a bad life. None of us want to have a miserable life. None of us want to have a life that, that fails epically, that's a disaster, that's miserable, that's torturous. We, we want a good life. And we innately have some sense of what that good life might be. But we also have some significant diversity in opinion as to what that good life might be. My good life would exclude bananas. And I just found a good scientific reason last week for why they should be excluded from the human diet. And I'll tell you, I was absolutely delighted. Uh, I'm still doing some more research on that, but it justified. I feel vindicated in my utter distaste and disdain for those uh, yellow, slippery, peeling things. One of the other things that we share in life, though, is the perspective. And this is, a, this is a default perspective with which we come into the world. And we have a hard time, even as Christians, we have a hard time shaking this one. So we do try to shake it because we're less overt about it the older and more mature we get. We tend to be more subtle about it the older we get because it sounds so obnoxious coming from early teens and teenagers when they say, hey, I've got the right to choose. I've got the right to decide for myself what the good life is. And so we hear it most poignantly, I think, from about 12 to 18 in our culture. Not here, of course, just in our broader culture. We, we hear this argument that I have the right to decide for myself what comprises a good life for me. But we have a really, really hard time shaking that one, even in our 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s. I don't know by experience about the latter decades, but I see evidence of it all around. People still hang on to it, and they think that they've, given their, they've made their contribution to the world, and now it's time to look after me, whether that's Florida or Arizona or the Caribbean or wherever. It's sun, sand, and fun. And so I now deserve it. And I have the right to decide for myself. So we have that natural inclination toward defining the good life. In addition to that, we are constantly being told what we ought to want in order to have a good life. And we're being told... Uh, through the advertising media, we're being told through entertainment media, we're being told through social media, and just every kind of media it, we're being inundated with, it's an attempt to help us determine, based on somebody else's perspective, what would comprise for us the good life. Some of those things we innately agree with, some of those things we innately disagree with. And then there's the whole collection where those of us who have committed our lives to Christ and want the good life that Christ has described and offered to us that breaks out now in eternal kinds of ways and finds its fulfillment ultimately in that eternal, unending, good and beautiful life in the heavens. We want that. We feel a bit conflicted with these offers of a good life 
that don't necessarily line up with what we understand the call of Jesus to be. And so we're waging this war between what I would like to have as a good life, what I'm being told I should have in order to have a good life, what I believe Jesus wants for me, and can I also be honest that we tend to be skeptical that Jesus' commands would ultimately lead us into a good life. And you see, that's a part of the human dilemma. Adam and Eve back in the garden said, as they listened to Satan, they basically said, I can't trust God to prescribe and define a good life for me. I'm going to have to decide that for myself. And that's what the devil came to them with. Are you sure that God has your best interests at stake? Don't you think you better reserve the right to decide for yourself? And so, ever since then, in our fallen nature, we have this skepticism that God has our best in mind. And so we struggle with that. And so this quest for the good life really isn't quite as simple as it might first appear to be. Now, the very two crucial bits, and I, I'd love to argue these extensively, okay? I'm fresh out of the classroom, and so I love to build my case for these things. You're going to have to take them and discuss them with me afterwards if you disagree. But two very crucial bits that I think are reality. We do not have, individually and even collectively, the capacity to have a large enough vision to assure, based on our knowledge, that I'm actually choosing the good life. How many of the options in the world, how many of the cultures have you actually surveyed to know whether the one you're in is the best quality of life? You see, we simply don't have the capacity. And it's one of the lies that we also tend to believe. I need to get as much information about all the possibilities so that I can, in fact, make the best informed decision so that I, in fact, have the best life possible. And so we're caught in this quandary. We don't have the infinite vision to assure, based on our comprehensive knowledge, that we're actually choosing the good life. And so we're always just a little unsettled and on edge, looking for the next best thing, looking for the next best thing that might enhance my quality of life. Second, my perspectives of the good life are shaped in large part by the inputs I receive from external sources, such as the culture in which I live, the family in which I've grown up, the church in which I have grown up, the general culture in which I live, and the media bits that come to me. That becomes, for all practical purposes, the extent of my exposure. And so I make my choices about my good life based on these external inputs. So let's assume, and I think it's a defensible position, we're all in search of a good life, and that we're being pressed into that quest. We're being led into that quest by the desires, the passions, the longings, the loves of our hearts. And that these deep affections can be observed not directly, but by what we do. So what I love, what I ultimately love, can be somewhat chronicled 
by my lifestyle, by the checks I write, where I swipe my credit card, uh, where I spend my time, where I do my things. Now, they can be best observed in private, where they manifest themselves most freely. The public persona of the display of our affections is somewhat restrained by cultural expectations. And so it's not quite as pure and true. We're conscious of what other people think is the good life. And so we seek to kind of trim our desires to keep them on our side in some measure. Yet these deep-lying affections and desires, passions and loves, are constantly pressing us toward and making us hungry for what we believe and what we long for as the good life. Now, to Micah. Micah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. I'm going to give you a, a quick preview of, of what's happening in the first five chapters here. Uh, Micah is a minor prophet, not a big name like Isaiah, but he's living at the same time <clears throat> and ministering at the same time and proclaiming the message of God at the same time as the prophet Isaiah. <clears throat> and a brief history lesson. Israel, the people to whom he is ministering and proclaiming the message of God, has been brought into the promised land, a land that God said to them is flowing with milk and honey, a land of prosperity, a place that had all the potential for a good life. God had told them before they arrived there that when you get here, it's going to be easy for you to forget. It's going to be hard for you to remember how you got here and why you're here, and who's responsible for this good life. So when you're living in houses that you did not build, when you're harvesting crops that you didn't plant and cultivate, he said to them repeatedly, beware, lest you forget the Lord, who delivered you out of the land of Egypt and brought you into this land of milk and honey. Beware lest you forget the one who rescued you from a horrible life of destruction, and ultimate death and brought you into the land of promise by his rich grace and his good gifts. You didn't manage this on your own. It's the gift of the Lord. So when you get there and you're enjoying these blessings, don't forget. And beware because it's going to be very, very easy to forget. This prophetic message comes at a time when Israel has wandered into idolatry. It's also a time of prosperity. They have a good life. Things are going well for them. And their perception of the good life is being shaped by the assumptions that wealth and prosperity come to those who have a good life. And they are what are essential to a good life. And it comes with the right and privilege to choose which God I'm going to serve. Or, if you prefer, which gods I'm going to bow down to. You see, they've taken for themselves now the right only of God, and that is to be a God creator. Now, the book 
up to this point alternates between warnings of judgment. So you've forsaken the Lord. This is what God is going to do. He's going to judge you. And then transitions to offering hope and some very beautiful messianic prophetic passages saying how that God is going to come and he's going to come down onto the mountain and it's going to be a time of blessing and prosperity. It alternates between denouncing the rich, the prophets, and the rulers, and offering the promise that God would once again bless and restore Israel. Now here in chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, there's a bit of a court setting. And this court setting, the Lord is making the opening statements. And he's saying, hills, mountains, earth, pay attention to what I have to say. He's calling his witnesses. And he says, is it not true that what I have done for these people, uh, you would verify, you would validate? And he asks the question, what have I done? What have I done that has caused them to be weary? What have I done that has wearied them and that has caused their love and affection for me, their God, to wane and to fall away. And God is asking the hills and the earth and the mountains, hey, tell me, what have I done? What have I done that these people don't love me the way they ought to love me? And that they've forsaken me and they're loving all this other stuff. And then he publicly reminds them of their history, how he has led them in the past. He said, remember, I brought you out of Egypt. I delivered you from the house of slavery and brought you into the promised land. I provided you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam to provide leadership for you from the land of slavery to the land of promise. And remember the story of Balaam and Balak. When your enemies wanted to curse you and wish evil upon you, they brought out their prophet to wish a curse upon you. And what did I do for you? I changed the tongue of the prophet. And instead of cursing you, he blessed you. Oh, and remember what happened from Shittim to Gilgal. Shittim was their last encampment before they crossed the Jordan River into the Promised Land. Gilgal was the first place they set up tent in the Promised Land. And between there was the miraculous journey across the Jordan River, where God opened up the Promised Land to them, miraculously. And he's saying to the hills and to the mountains, didn't I do all this? Haven't I done this for this, these people? Why are their hearts so cold toward me? Why don't they love me? Why aren't their affections for me driving them? To me, they've forsaken me. Hills, mountains, earth, I call you to witness. And then the prophet asks rhetorically, what is it? that God is asking? What is it that he requires? And, and he has this, it's a, it's a powerful rhetorical device. The prophet now saying to the people, is he asking something that's extremely unreasonable, that would bring you a quality of life that's a disaster? Is he asking for massive quantities of burnt offerings and calves? Is he asking for thousands of rams? Is he asking for 10,000 rivers of oil? Something completely unimaginable, something we simply can't 
can't possibly bring about. Is he asking you to sacrifice your firstborn? Is that why your heart has grown cold toward him? The answer is obviously to all of these. No, that's not what he's asking. What's deeply intriguing to me is the capstone here, the sacrifice of the firstborn. He's not asking that of Israel, though in their idolatry, they're probably doing it to the pagan gods. He's not asking that of them, but history tells us that he's going to do that himself for this ungrateful people. He's going to give his only begotten son. So no, he's not asking that of us. So why have our affections grown cold, he says. And then the prophet comes around with this closing question. He said he's already told us what is good. He's already described to us the good life. He's not hiding that. And it comprises these three basic things. To do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with God. There it is in a nutshell. Why are our affections grown cold toward him? Here are the words of the prophet. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O oh, my people, remember what Balak king of Moab devised and what Balaam the son of Beor answered him and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal that you may know the saving acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. This is the sum of a good life that God wants to provide. It's the sum of the good life that God invites us to participate in. To love justice, to do justice, to be committed to fairness, to equitable relationships with each other. The natural tendency is that we have one standard of measurement for ourselves, another by which we judge others. And Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, you don't do that. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. There is one standard of justice and equity. And that's what the prophet is saying. God has already told us, I hate injustice. Do justice. 
And then love mercy. Have your heart longing to extend mercy. To be merciful. Because, again, Jesus says, it's the people who extend mercy that themselves become recipients of mercy. And we all, of course, want mercy ourselves. And so we must be the kind of people who love with deep affection to extend mercy to other people. And that love kindness to love mercy has the idea of a steadfast, unfailing love that is just constant, stable, secure, not fickle, doesn't flicker, doesn't ebb and flow, but it's a love that's just constant and steadfast, and it's dependable, it's reliable, it guides and governs the life, and it expresses itself in what it is devoted to, and of course says, must be God first, again quoting the sermon, God first, his kingdom, and then everything else finds its rightful place, but if anything else takes first place, and I love anything more than God, everything falls apart. Everything is disordered. But when I love God, heart, soul, mind, and strength, my affections are ruled by him and toward him, then all this other stuff does find its appropriate place. And then the third pillar, to walk humbly with God. What does it mean to walk humbly? with God. Well, it means we need to live a life of humility. Humility is not passivity. It's not being a doormat. It's not being a rug that other people just abuse and trample on, but it's to walk without arrogance in relationship with God that is tuned into what he says and has an open-hearted, teachable spirit to all that God has to say to us. And when God speaks, we listen. A good student is a humble student. He knows his appropriate place in light of his teacher. And he receives well. And he learns well. And he follows well. And that's the essence of discipleship, is that I'm willing to listen to my teacher, Jesus, the revealed Son of God, and I have an unequivocal yes to anything he asks of me. I don't require to understand before I obey. I'm committed to obeying, trusting that as I obey his teachings, he will help me to understand what I need to understand. And Jesus alone is good and can lead me into the good and beautiful life. And I think any person of this time who heard that line, walk humbly with God, there's one name that immediately came to mind, Enoch. That was in their stories. There was a man who walked humbly with God. And he was not. For God took him. Now what does this have to do with media? <clears throat> I ask you to consider uh, the inundation that we receive from advertising media. Okay, and I, I'm in business. Uh, I create this stuff. Okay, and I pump it out there. It's part of what we do. And I know how it works. I know how it's intended to work. Okay, let's put it that way. 
And what is advertising media? It often appeals to the emotions and personal sense of well-being. It appeals to the sense that says that stuff and this particular stuff is essential to the good life. And if you don't have this stuff or this thing, you're missing out on the good life. Or if you feel like you're not having a good life, then this will help you have a good life. Okay, and for a particular line of storage sheds, that's true. <laughs> but that, that's, that's how this media works. So is advertising wrong? No. Is paying attention to ads wrong? No. However, are you willing to submit yourself unscrupulously to all advertising? The answer is no. You don't do that. However, you might be surprised how deeply your affections are shaped by the power of advertising media. And how much better you actually think your life would be after that Big Mac. Or, you know, how delighted somebody would actually be to want to be with you because you have a 20-piece chicken McNuggets. <coughs> or this stuff, this stuff filters in. And it shapes our perceptions. It drives our affections. It, it ignites our longings <coughs> that inform us about the qualities of a good life. But it can also easily generate a lack of contentment which incidentally is always present in a good life. <laughs> if you're not content, you know you're not having a good life. But as Philippians says, the Apostle Paul, if you have these fundamentals and you're content, wow, you've discovered a treasure trove of richness. Whether that's in the palace with the massive banquet or whether it's sitting on the floor in a developing nation with nothing but a bowl of rice. If you can be content and you're free from the anxiety of wanting something to satisfy your desires for a good life, you can be content in any of those places. You know what? You're living a good life. So when encountering advertising media, and I, I use this one first probably because I think it's most overt, is we know that we need to filter that out. Okay, so no, that is not part of a good life. No, I don't need that expensive surgery and injections in my face in order to be happy, in order to be loved. No, I don't need that. We, we filter some things automatically. Others are more subtle. But we know we need to filter it. And that Jesus has said things about the good life that certain kinds of things just roll off. We dismiss them. Say, no, that's not true. No, that's not for me. No, that's not. I wouldn't be happy with that. The banana, for example. You can market them all you want. It would not make my life any better. In fact, is they're genetically defective. So, yeah. uh, News media. This is one that I think is a little less subtle. We like to know what's happening in the world. We like to pay attention to what's happening. And particularly in this election year, it is easy for us to begin 
to develop this idea that if my candidate or my particular political party that is currently emphasizing certain things that align with my values, if they fail to win the election, we're in for a terribly bad life. Okay, ever feel that way? Ever feel that if the wrong person becomes president or the wrong party controls Congress, hey, we're, it's, it's doomsday. Might as well throw in the towel. Because somehow my quality of life, the goodness of life is tied with the powers that be. And if my perspectives are represented well in the seats of power or not, and my sense of well-being and sense of good life is tied closely to that. And I'm suggesting, only suggesting, I want to leave here safely today, that if the way I hear the news media, the way I listen to it, results in worry, fear, and an obsessive view of the here and now, I'm tying an inordinate amount of my sense of well-being and a good life to the political environment in which I live. And I'm forgetting that Jesus said, oh, my kingdom is not about this temporary, fleeting world. Yeah, rather, it's like a mustard seed. It's like leaven. And oh, by the way, it's going to encounter hatred. It's going to encounter opposition. And it's going to encounter suffering. Get used to that one. But I'm going to preserve it, and at the end of the day, it's going to triumph. Because I, the Lord Jesus Christ, when I went to the cross, I won the final battle. battle. That was the high water mark. We're on the winning run. This is mop up, and you can expect a lot of trouble in the meantime, but we're going to win this one. It's basically done. And so we can embrace the qualities of faith and love in a good life today with absolute confidence that our commander-in-chief is going to put this one all together. And the fear of a little trouble and a missing hospital bed because of, I didn't say Obamacare, no, um, half of the hospital shut down would cause us loss of a good life. How does that impact my doing justice, acting justly to my neighbor? loving kindness and mercy, and walking humbly with God. So we must resist permitting the news media to definitively shape our understanding of the good life. And then entertainment media. Story and drama have a powerful impact on shaping our affections and our appetites and our desires. I am deeply moved by story deeply moved by drama. And it, it shapes almost subconsciously sometimes. It feeds the imagination, engages the affections and desires, wakens things, ignites passions, wakens things within us that we didn't know existed until we participate in a story. But isn't it interesting that much of what lies behind the entertainment media in our world today those people are idolized as having the good life. 
But when you check them up close, their relationships are broken. They're on drugs, trying to stave off the worry and the fear and the anxiety. And they spend millions of dollars trying to stay presentable so that the public won't be disappointed in how they're aging. Good life? Dead at 48? And yet it's so easy for us to buy into their, their persona and their, their presentation of the good life and think, oh, I want it. When in fact, it's fundamentally flawed and frequently leads to ruin. And then there are all forms of social media. Uh, things as simple as telephones to blogs and social media websites. And it is, it's a particular issue in our day. And I love these connection tools. Hey, frankly, I love them. I like my Facebook account. Uh, not on it much. If you try to get a hold of me through my Facebook page, it might be two weeks. But it's a great tool. It's one way that I've learned to stay in touch with a few people in remote parts of the earth that otherwise I don't hear from for years and years on end. However, these, these technologies that make available a broad scope of friendship and connection with large numbers of people is a relatively recent phenomena. And this broad connection has deceptively convinced many that the scope of friendship we have, the larger the circle, the better the life. And while there's tremendous opportunity for good, there is one of the more tragic losses that occurs around this as well in our day. And that is, the tendency to exchange deep relationships for a multitude of shallow relationships. And that is not serving us well. In addition, the immediacy of the technology and the frequent intrusion into our lives by these technological devices has disrupted quietness, restfulness, and solitude essential to a healthy, balanced life. And unless we're willing to take control and be thoughtful and intentional with these devices and these media, they will increasingly trivialize our relationships and invade the most important and sacred relationships that lead to a truly good life. And they'll be invaded by the less important. We must recognize that the media we typically encounter holds a different overall perspective of what a good life is than what Jesus both demonstrated and taught. And so we cannot permit ourselves to unreservedly imbibe media of any sort. And that includes much, quote, Christian media. You can't afford to imbibe it undiscerningly. We must be willing to engage the ideas 
while guarding our desires, our affections, our loves, and permitting them only to be openly nurtured in the worship of Jesus Christ. Because that worship is also deeply formative. So one of the tests we must apply to media, one of the filters we have to place over it as we critique it is, does it encourage living justly? Does it encourage justice in action? Does it value love and kindness and mercy? Does it honor and nurture a humility of walk before God as fundamental components of a good life? Now, there is an answer of attempted abstinence from media in the face of the inability to exercise this kind of critique. And I'm going to say that's one of the roles parents must play. Children cannot filter media well. So parents must. We, as older folk, must learn to be skeptical of our ability to filter media. If, in fact, you believe you are highly qualified and very proficient at filtering huge amounts of media, I'm just telling you, you're probably wrong. It slides by. We have to develop the skills. And fundamentally, even more importantly, we must nurture and feed an affection and a warm-hearted devotion and a deep desire and longing for all that Christ has to offer and must be able to come to him in worship and very intentional worship daily. And let that be what feeds our affections so that our desire for a good life always drives us back toward him. The good news is that Jesus Christ came to fundamentally transform the desires and affections of our hearts. The bad news is we've developed some pretty nasty habits in the flesh that Jesus is going to have to work against for a very long time. And we have to be willing to let him reshape those things. So what's your definition of the good life? And maybe more fundamentally, who is deciding what the good life is for you? Are you reserving that right for yourself? Are you passing it off to the media for them to decide? Or are you committed to a life of humble following after the Lord Jesus so that he becomes the one who defines for you the truly good life? May God give us the wisdom, the light, and the courage to walk humbly with our God to do justice and to love kindness and mercy. Let's stand for prayer. <clears throat> Our Heavenly Father,
We get things in life so confused and jumbled up. You who are ultimately the only true good, we mistrust. What presents itself as attractive, we believe to be good. And yet we thank you that in your great love to us, you've sent your son to bear our sin on the cross and so to absorb the evil of the world and through the power of his resurrection to awaken us from death to a new eternal kind of life in which you are birthing good and beautiful things. And Lord, so shape our desires and our tastes that we would love what is good that we would learn to despise and loathe what is evil. And that in our worship of your Son, the Lord Jesus, our hearts would truly come to life and be fanned into flame. Thank you that in your grace, you're patient with us. And we ask that you would continue the work that you've done, begun until the day Christ comes and we enter the eternally good life. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.